Hello, and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today my guest is Munjal Shah, co-founder and CEO of Hippocratic AI, a new startup in generative AI in healthcare. Hippocratic AI is building a safety-focused large language model specifically built for the healthcare industry. We go into detail about what building LLMs in the healthcare setting is like, and along the way, Moonjal gives a lot of great advice on not only the AI in medicine space, but also on how to brainstorm and ideate about pursuing your next big idea. He is a very inspiring leader and entrepreneur, and I hope you all enjoy. Thank you. Moonjal, thank you so much for having us today. Uh, our first question that we ask is a question that we ask all guests. Could you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Hey, David. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, to answer your question, it, it was kind of a circuitous path for me. Um, I started on the machine learning side. That was what I focused my undergraduate and graduate work on. Um, and then I built a couple companies in machine learning before this, one of which we sold to Google. The day after I sold the company to them and what should have been kind of the, you know, the best day of my at least professional career to that point. Um, I ended up with chest pains and ended up in the ER. And oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was 37. My dad had his first heart attack in his mid 40s. So it wasn't like my my genes were exactly the best genes, but you know, South Asian genes at all. But the um, and uh. And so then I, I kind of rehabilitated myself, lost a bunch of weight, changed my diet, um, uh, and just learned a ton about health and healthcare and medicine. And actually, I took a class in endocrinology um, through the extension program at Stanford, which was just just down the street from me. And um, and I loved it. Actually, <laughs> had I done that class as an undergrad, I, I probably would have chosen medicine over computer science, honestly. Um, but... Uh, I remember the first day my wife was like, they gave you seven hours of homework. I'm like, no, I'm just seven chapters ahead. She's like, oh, wow. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. It's so interesting. I just kept turning the page. And so uh, the like that was, you know, although there might just have been endocrinology because it's kind of a systems view of the body. Right. And so, yeah, just curious, why, why endocrinology? Oh, because just so much of what I had gone through was, you know, heart disease and diabetes and pre-diabetes related. And so, I mean, that was kind of why I chose endocrinology. Actually, it was also one of only five classes they had in the extension. So, uh, <laughs> I was, you know, it was like, you know, I had to pick one. But the, um, uh, but I found it very, very interesting. Um, and then I started a company in healthcare that I spent 10 years on. And then I saw generative AI come out and I said, you know, AI finally really works. Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, you know, before that AI, in my opinion, was an idiot savant. Like it was really good at one small thing. But then if you made it do anything outside of that narrow thing you trained it for, it just couldn't do it. And, um, and, you know, generative AI showed we, ha we had the next generation of AI. And I said, okay, this is the time to try to combine healthcare and AI. And, uh, and thus entered Hippocratic AI. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then we started Hippocratic. I was wondering, could you tell me more about the story of how you guys started? Um, did you, was, were like, had the LLM craze begun yet or was this before? No, you know, I'd love to tell the story and be like, oh, I saw it coming the whole time. And, you know, <laughs> four years ago, I knew this was coming. No, like, honestly, like a lot of people, we saw ChatGPT launch and said, oh my God, I never thought it could be at this level. 
of intelligence. Like it really felt like chatbots had just gone from an IQ of 70 to an IQ of 130, right? And um, and then said, you know, what, you know, like how do we apply this to healthcare? And I think there's a couple forks in the road we took that were different than other people. Um, and the first fork was, Everybody else was like, oh, my God, I'm going to use this like alpha fold and going to build a way to design drugs. And I was like, that's fine. But, you know, alpha fold already did a pretty good job of that. (laughs) Yeah. And you don't need a language model quite the same way. Right. You need a very specific type of model to do that. Um, And then I think the the second fork in the road was everybody else was on this bus of like, you know, let's do diagnoses. We could make the next generation doctor. Like, no, like the hallucinations are too significant like you're going to kill somebody and i think they spent enough time in healthcare like they really just hadn't understood that you know there's 4.2 trillion dollars we spend on healthcare about 600 billion are drugs and about 660 billion are what we spend on doctors if you use the amount we spend on doctors as a proxy for diagnoses it's not perfect proxy but it's a you know it's at least a little bit of a proxy you basically say all right that's 1.2 trillion ish, right? What about the other 3 trillion? Yeah. Like, well, why don't we build an LM to make that stuff better, cheaper, more effective, uh, more timely, more responsive? I'm like, let's, let's go do that. And like, so that was our, those are the two forks in the road that kind of Hippocratic took, very different than everybody else, right? You saw like mm-hmm. Google came out with MedPalm 2 and they're like, yeah. load image. Uh, imagery and you can analyze that for, you know, various uh, medical ailments. I'm like, that sounds like diagnosis to me. Like, you know, so we chose a very different path than than many others in, in trying to combine this. And that's, and, and I, I'll talk to you a little bit more about a third fork in the road we made, which, which led to an even different uh, conclusion in, in a bit. Just curious, what is the other three trillion that you mentioned? It's everything else. It's administration. It's following up. It's, you know, nursing spend. It's hospital costs. It's, you know, um, ensuring people have the right nutritional support, uh, at least advice on nutritional support. It's, it's you know, it's all the other things in there, believe it or not. There is just so wow. much on healthcare. Like, America doesn't lack, like, let's take our chronic diseases. Like how many people are are misdiagnosed with diabetes? Not that many. Undiagnosed, maybe. Misdiagnosed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. And the diagnosis process is not that ambiguous. Yeah. A diabetes. It's pretty transparent. It's pretty easy. Like you run the A one C, you get an answer. Right? Yeah. Like yep. you know, maybe you do an OGTT, right? You know, but you know, your fasting blood sugar is a little. You know, you can use that as a proxy, but you probably should run an A1C after that, right? So, yeah. Um, the uh, okay, so great. Um, we don't have a problem with diagnoses in diabetes. We have a problem with adherence to the care plan, mm-hmm. right? So we spend a ton of money in medical adherence and care plan adherence, and that's where a lot of this money's going. And the problem we have in American healthcare is an adherence problem. And a care plan following problem, not a diagnosis problem by and large. Yeah. I mean, there are some rare diseases that are hard to diagnose, but that's not the majority where our, our costs go. And so does is Hippocratic AI aim to try and tackle the adherence problem? In a way. 
you know, so the, the third fork in the road that we took was everybody else said, all right, let's build an LM from healthcare and build it into the EMR and build all these tools that automate, you know, summarizing your EMR notes and um, let's do ambient listening technology and try to auto fill the notes and all kind of physician productivity centric items by and large, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's great, except that, you know, again, if you make physicians 10% more efficient, like, does that really change healthcare? That's, yeah. I mean, I suspect that what's happening right now is physicians are spending their time charting at night when they want to spend time with their kids. So if they get more efficient, they'll spend more time with their kids, which is great. Mm-hmm. They just have that life work-life balance. Um, but it's unlikely they'll see 10% more patients. I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's just unlikely. Um, and so, um, and plus 10% is not a very big lever, right? It seems like it, but okay. So you could have gotten there by, instead of spending, you know, 660 billion, you could have spent 720 billion. Uh, okay. Yeah. Now <laughs> uh, imagine a different answer today. Let's take these chronic diseases. 68 million Americans have two or more adult, American adults have two or more chronic diseases. We do not give a chronic care nurse to every single one who calls them every week and just checks in and says, hey, do you have your medications and are you taking them? And, you know, do you, have you made your next appointment and do you need a ride to it? And are you food insecure? And like all the things that we do. Now we do have chronic care nurses, but if you look at the math, we give them to the top one, 2% most expensive patients or most critically ill, Ill patients or most mm-hmm. multi-chronic patients, right? Mm-hmm. Why don't we give it to all the rest? Because at $90 an hour, the math doesn't work at all. Yeah. You actually will lose money. You'll spend way more money and not get better outcomes necessarily uh, for your money, like, you know, on a value basis. You will get better outcomes, but you will just not get it. But LLMs, to make a chronic care nurse that can check in and have an open-ended conversation will cost somewhere around 18 cents an hour with an LLM. Wow. Okay. That's incredible. That's what most people don't realize is that the cost of using LLMs is in tokens out. The cost of its wor- number of words it says out is actually where most of the cost is. The number of words you put into it, it like you can actually see this in some of the API pricing for, for a number of these companies. You'll see they charge a lot more per token out than per token in. Like, mm-hmm. And so, but an average conversation between two people can't be more than about 100 words per minute. Yeah, yeah. It's like just the pace people talk. I mean, maybe it's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I talk really fast. It's all right, 200 words, but it's like nothing. Mm -hmm. Versus one search result equivalent of using an LLM can generate hundreds and hundreds of words, right? So so we came to realize that it's going to be 18 cents an hour. Now, at 18 cents an hour, I can call probably every one of those 68 million people. It's incredible, yeah. And so this is the idea we have. We believe the right use of language models is to augment all the staff we're missing in healthcare and to go one step further and do what we call super staffing, which is this idea of where today do we not have anybody interacting with patients where we could? I mean, here's another example. Why don't we call every single patient two days after they start every single new, uh, every new medication? Just check in. How you doing? Any weird side effects? Oh, I'm having this side effect. Oh, you know, actually that one's normal. Uh, Or, oh, that one's normal for the first few days, but it'll go away in a week or two. Or actually, no, that that is unusual. You're one of the rare people that did have that side effect. But, you know, there's another medication that that doesn't have that. 
let me notify your doctor. Maybe he can switch you over. Like, we could get much better adherence if we did that. Yeah. Right? Like, we don't do that. And I'm like, and I asked actually the head of a pharmacy, I'm like, why don't you have pharmacists call every single patient two days after they start? They're like, because we make only a few dollars a bottle. <laughs> like, we can't afford to do it. <laughs> and even if we could, we can't find enough pharmacists to do it. And I'm like, great. But we have language models that have passed the NAPLEX. They passed the pharmacy exam. They know every side. They can memorize every last thing. Like, why don't we have that thing check in? That's great. You know, I uh, so I recently started my my residency, my intern year, and I've written a few prescriptions. And I would love to know how some patients are doing. You know, I started a patient on Ozempic, and I would love right. to know how that patient is doing. And it would be awesome if with uh, this service, you know, it could kind of give me a little written summary of how they're doing, and uh, you know, have a proxy conversation. Right. I guess almost for me, but kind of ha know how they're doing, even just for my own learning too. Right. And you probably yeah, told, the, told him to titrate it up, right? Start with a smaller dose and then increase mm -hmm. dosing. And if he has large headaches and some of the early symptoms you have with Ozempic, it's like, hey, maybe back it off for a week or two and then dial it up a week or two later. Or like, you should call him every single week and be like, hey. <laughs> I wish I had the time. Yeah. You don't. Like, there's no way you can do it, right? But mm -hmm. somebody should and somebody should gather that info and somebody should present it to you. Now we finally have the conversational AI with the IQ and with the medical knowledge to be able to do this. That's great. Like these, are, these are what I mean by super staffing. They're like yeah. use cases that we never could do before because we never thought we could have a pharmacist for 18 cents an hour. That's, or at least I feel like it's, uh, I, I like the word super staffing. It's like augmenting. Um, <laughs> wow. This is, this is what we're after. This is kind of the vision of Hippocratic. Is, and so if you see, like, there's, you know, three forks in the road. We took and went down a different path than everybody else. They they did pharma. We said, no, no, do healthcare and medicine. Mm -hmm. They diagnoses. We said, no, 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 just do everything else. And then they said, let's do, you know, just EMR productivity. And we said, no, 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 let's focus on staffing and super staffing. Mm. So do you have multiple different LLMs or is is there, like, one main one? that some of that is proprietary about oh yeah of course models, but you know we're we're developing you'll see us get very specific so you know as as you said in the intro like we're building a safety focused large language model mm -hmm. it's kind of hard to build a safety focused one just generically you literally yeah the, like you know we are building you know a chronic care nurse and we're first testing a chronic care nurse for people that have chronic Heart failure, right? I mean, sorry, mm. failure. I said that wrong. congestive heart failure, right? CHF. And so, mm -hmm. congestive heart failure, we are first building a chronic care nurse and we're testing the heck out of that to make sure it does all the checking in properly. Hey, are you having any swelling in your ankles? Hey, you're having any pressure on your chest today? Hey, do you have any shortness of breath while lying down? Like, we want to make sure. And then there's like a checklist that you'd want to follow. And we want to make sure our chronic care nurse follows that exact checklist. And doesn't miss a point. And even if you take it off on a tangent conversation, it'll bring the conversation back. And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of important work like that, that um, uh, we think you can only perfect going kind of one condition at a time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, so you'll see us roll it out that way. Like you'll literally see us say, all right, here's our 
chronic care nurse for CHF. Here's our chronic care nurse for type 1 diabetes. Here's our chronic care nurse for, and you'll you'll see us kind of, and that's how we'll ensure safety. And we'll also do that by, we actually have this process where we bring in real nurses who do that exact role today. Is that like RLHF? And yes, that's like, RLHF. And wow. have them not only guide the model on how to respond, but then we have them do a blind taste test at the end. And we say, all right, is this thing you're talking to, we don't tell them whether it's a human or a thing, and we actually mix it up. Sometimes it's human, sometimes it's not. And we say, is this thing ready to talk to patients or not? Oh, that's nice. And so, and only when a certain percentage, you know, the people say yes, will we release it. And so, I mean, I think this is a, you know, a lot of people have been talking about AI safety, AI safety. I'm like, you know, I don't know that a top-down AI safety strategy is as good as a bottoms-up strategy because, like, the actual people doing the actual job, the clinicians doing the job today are probably the best ones to judge whether this is safe, mm -hmm. you know, versus, you know, just somebody writing regulations somewhere. So. Mm. I want to ask a question, and it might be a little tough one, and I apologize in advance, but I'm curious. Uh, a lot of patients, you know, they have both CHF and diabetes or they have multiple comorbidities, um, do you anticipate when they talk to an LLM, do they need a, a, a special one that is trained on all of those multiple comorbidities or can you kind of co combine and, you know, have that combining it's easy. Like that's not a hard thing. Or we you just switch it <laughs> like literally be like, all right, this one will just start talking now. Like, you know, that. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. I see your other condition. Right. So mm -hmm. like a tag team. Yeah. But, but it's just a good way to atomically. QA the system, right? You're just, we're able to like make sure the system works great for at least this condition before we go on. Like we actually just did a, a preoperative nurse for colonoscopies. Oh, wow. You don't, works. you don't really need to waste doctor and nurse time on, on pre-op conversations for colonoscopies. Like yeah, what's 98% of that conversation? Did you take your goal lightly? <laughs> are, you, are you drinking eight ounces every so many minutes? Yeah. Like, do you have a ride back? Like, you know, I mean, is it, like that's, you know, did you, are you not, you know, only drinking clear liquids and da 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 da? So you don't, you know, like, it, like, and did you stop eating? But if they violate any one of those, then we got to cancel the thing at the last minute and it ends up being an unused slot in the, in, in, you know, uh, mm -hmm. and there's a, hospital system loses money, right? Because it's mm -hmm. a slot that went on years. Yeah, yeah. And um, and they might have other questions. Oh, I don't know. I heard from my friend that it destroys your good gut bacteria when you drink the go lightly, the prep, you know, which which is true, apparently. <laughs> I looked this up the other day. Um, and, but it comes back. Oh, oh, okay, great. You know, so, um, but, you know. It, oh, it'll be able to respond to that, to those questions? I literally already asked it that. I, oh, wow our version the other day and i i just threw a curveball like that at it and it's like yeah you know studies show it, it may impact some of your you know microbiome and your gut and da, 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 but it tends to come back you know within a few ah, it's impressive so you know you can, you can in fact i was talking to about um we had another one where we were testing the chf and it actually said something i said oh i i i really love diet coke you know can i keep drinking my diet coke because it was like, hey, you need to, you know, watch your sodium intake. And uh, and then it said, uh, it said, yeah, you can, but please keep in mind that Diet Coke has 20 milligrams of salt. 
Oh. I was like, salt and Diet Coke? Really? Yeah, I can't eat it. I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't know, I, I didn't know that. But look, this thing's read the whole internet, including every label of every drink. Wow. Oh, so it knew it. And it just said, you know, actually, and it like just did it. And I was like, oh boy. Like, so that's what I mean. It had, and that's impressive. I, yeah. You know. <laughs> we've actually trained our model on every menu of every restaurant in the country. Like, thanks to DoorDash, it's all online. And oh, wow. Right. So you could even be a CHF patient and be like, Hey, I'm at this restaurant. What should I not order? And be like, do not order the burger and do not order the fries because, you know, they both have a ton of salt. Like, you know, maybe that's try. Pretty the- cool. I feel like that's an unanticipated, uh, I don't know if network effect is the right word, but that's something that, yeah, like an emergent phenomena. Yeah. That's something I would not have anticipated, you know, 10 years ago that we'd have such easy access to this data. Well, and, and the nice thing is like, you know, normally be like, hey, I'm going to get you with a registered dietitian who's going to teach you how to eat. But that's not what most people want. Most people are like, I'm at this restaurant, tell me what to order, what not to order. Uh-huh. Right? Like, that's uh, easy. Oh, make sure you don't order that. You know, it has a ton of salt in it. Oh, uh, okay. You know, and it doesn't know each individual, like, chef and what he put in, but it knows in general that dish has a lot of salt. Yeah, the nutrition facts and... Wow. Right? So... um. So anyway, so that's, you know, this is, this is the future that's coming mm-hmm. is, you know, these language models. And we even found it can do parallel phone calls, right? So if I'm on the phone and I say, Hey, I, I, I don't have a ride to next week's appointment. It can call five of the transportation companies that that health system works with in parallel and say, Hey, and wow. you can get Munjal next week on Wednesday at two o'clock. And then right there wow. while I'm on the phone with it. It can do that, verify it, verify with me. Yeah, they can't come at two and they can come at one thirty. Or you can you go a little earlier? Oh yeah, sure. Okay, fine. All right. Well, let me confirm with them. All right, I confirm with them. They'll be at your house at, you know, one six eight four, whatever lane. Like that's it. Like there wow. normally what would have happened is a nurse would have had that conversation with the patient, would have hung up, would have serially called each of those using mm-hmm. a small mm-hmm. time. Would have yeah. fouled and then called the patient back, said, Can you do 130? Then called the transportation company yep, back. Yep. Yes, you can do 130. Oh. <laughs> All that time they could have spent talking to another patient. Yeah. Wow. And so there's there's I mean, this is really going to be game changing, I think. Um, in just this this augmentation area. Um, also like when we do discharge. Why do we give you a whole list of instructions of what you're supposed to do the next seven days? And I assume you're going to remember it when you're coming out of anesthesia and you're like still kind of loopy and you're stressed out. And, you know, like people don't remember it all. Mm-hmm. Why don't we call you every morning? Like, why don't we say to you, hey, I'm going to call you every morning at 9 a.m. and I'm going to give you the instructions for the day. Oh, today's the third day. You need to change your bandage. Like instead of telling you at discharge, hey, on the third day, make sure you change your bandage so you don't get it. Yeah. We can. I feel like at that point, the, the doc could even pro- yeah. or tell the LLA, hey, I want you to remind the patient, blah, 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 blah. We don't even need to. That's Just nice. give us the instructions, give us the things. The LLM will remember. The LLM will call them. The LLM will follow up. The LLM will, you know, indicate anything back about, you know, oh, they said they couldn't do it or they said they couldn't get that prescription or that, you know, they didn't start it yet. Like we have, we have the ability to remember every last conversation we've had with that patient. And the ability to, um, you know, kind of call them as uh, just in, and deliver information to them just in time, right? Exactly mm-hmm. when they're supposed to do the activity, which will just increase adherence. That's all. Yeah. Right? 
I'm I'm curious uh, as someone I've I've done some research on building LLMs. Uh, as much as you can publicly disclo- uh, disclose, I was wondering, could you tell us about your process of building the LLM and how to make sure that it's safe, uh, minimizing hallucinations? Um, yeah. So the first things we do is um, we are actually, you know, training our own LLM from scratch and buying wow. model. And so the reason we're doing that is we realize a lot of healthcare contents not in the current LLMs. Mm-hmm. And when I say that, you know, I'll give you some examples of things. So there, there's um, all the LMs are trained on what's called the common crawl, right? Which is the internet. The common crawl. <laughs> That's what it's I called. like that. I like that. It's actually the service that goes out to the whole internet, crawls it, and puts it in a giant zip file, basically, mm-hmm. file. and um, and then structures it in a bit way. Now, the common crawl got everything that was easily crawlable on the internet. Not everything, by the way. It's just easily crawlable. Mm-hmm. Now, this is fine for travel because most of the stuff on the internet, like most travel companies' information is is uh, in front of the firewall, so to speak, right? Mm-hmm. Most healthcare is behind the firewall. So it's like an iceberg. The part that's on the internet is actually very small. The part yeah, has more information because of, you know, and rightfully so because of HIPAA that's there. But there's, a, there's this kind of middle layer of stuff that's on the internet but is not accessible to the common crawler. And it turns out the common crawler really struggles with most PDFs, by the way. Mm. Most healthcare information is in the form of a PDF. In fact, you would want your language model to be able to have read every single meta, you know, um, insurance plan, healthcare insurance plan. The 200-page PDF from Aetna on plan XYZ, it, sh- it should have read it, right? What's yeah. covered, not. It should know that for every single plan in the country. Well, they're mostly all PDFs. So we went and found them all, got them all, parsed them all. Our LLM knows the details of every single healthcare plan. That's impressive. I mentioned earlier, we got, you know, every single menu. Then we went and got um, every single malpractice lawsuit in the country going back 20 years. Right? Because you wanted to be able to reason about legal risks. Like you won't, you know, so Mm -hmm. we went ahead and put that in there. Uh, we put every CMS regulation um, out there for Medicare. We put like, anyways, you name it, we put it. Mm-hmm. And um, and it, you get also sense like we're building a healthcare LLM, not just a medical LLM. So we this isn't just about like medical docs. It's also about insurance documents, provider directories, just, you know, every last thing our LLM has been um, kind of ingested. Mm-hmm. The second part is you then got to instruction tune it. So you first pre-train and then you instruction tune. And instruction tuning is this process of teaching it kind of how to speak, right? Um, and it's like, a think of it as like on-the-job training, whereas the other one was like, you know, school-based training. And um, the on-the-job training, if you look at the Llama 2 paper, it talks about their instruction tuning data sets they use. Mm-hmm. And all of them are one turn, in fact, one of them is 3.9 turns, but a turn is like, I ask a question, you give me an answer. Well, that's great for a query-based paradigm where I'm like, you know, think of how you use ChatGPT. You put in a query, you get an answer, you modify your query a little bit, you get another answer. Okay, that's two turns. Mm-hmm. That's not how you and I talk right now. We've, no. we've had, I mean, 100 turns already? 200? <laughs> but every yeah. time you inject, hey, yeah, I agree. Oh, my God, let me ask that. Like, that's a turn, right? So, mm-hmm. We trained our language model to have 50, 100 turns. Mm. 
different type of conversation. In fact, they should have never called it chat GPT. They should have called it blog GPT because it's so long-winded, right? We taught ours to be far more kind of conversational at a level that almost nobody has done. And so you have to instruction tune this differently. We did it though with by getting all sorts of kind of unique information that makes it dis chat in a way that that a, a nurse does, uh, or a dietitian, or a genetic counselor, you know, whichever role we're building. And then the last part is you have to do RLHF, which is the reinforcement learning with human feedback. It's the process mm -hmm. that most people believe made Chat GPT so good. They took GPT three and did this thing to it, this RLHF step. Except as I mentioned earlier, we, we did that with medical professionals or are doing that with medical professionals, I should say, because it's an ongoing process. Yeah. And it's like uh, RLAHF, like advanced human feedback. Yeah, it is exactly. You don't want just a layman. You want a medical, you know, clinically trained, a medical professional. And then, um, and that's what we're building. And so, you know, a very different process. We then added voice to it because the voice matters. We added tone mm -hmm. detection to it because mm -hmm. there's big difference between the patient saying my back hurts and the patient saying my back hurts. Yeah. Voice rec is identical on both of those word for word. Right. But it's not the, you know, a good doctor would respond very differently to those two answers and would incorporate that in its decision making later. And a good nurse would do the same. Was it a tough decision to decide to build your own LLM? Um, yeah. The reason why I asked that is I, I feel like you know, some people either build their LLM from the ground up or the other option is you build a wrapper on a pre-existing LLM like GPT-4. Yeah, but when you build a wrapper on GPT-4, all you can, you you can't pre-train additional content in. Yes, yeah. So all the pre-training is out the window. That's not a thing. You can put it in what's called document retrieval, which is this other database, but it's kind of not the same. <laughs> you can't even do... Um, yeah, they, they, like there's a bunch. You, you can't do instruction tuning because you need full parameter access to do it. You can mm -hmm, do something mm -hmm. called Aura where you kind of do an after the fact sort of thing, but it's not as good. Um, and and then you can't do RLHF either because again, yeah. you need full parameter access to do that. So you can do fine tuning, which typically just modifies the last layer or a small set of the weights in the system. Um, but you're you're not building a truly better model. Plus, GPT-4 doesn't work for conversations for one simple reason, by the way. It's not fast enough. Mm. Feed it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Time it with your stopwatch. Mm. Um, I think uh, in our use case, it was coming out to like seven, eight seconds. I mean, imagine a conversation you and I are having where every time you respond, I wait eight seconds. One. Okay, now I respond. Like, that's super awkward. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a, um, I think I counted to eight kind of fast even there. So, <laughs> like, you know, but like, think about that. It's way too slow. And so there's kind of a Goldilocks zone. You want a language model here that they, too small a language model is not smart enough. Too big a language model is really smart, but too slow. Mm -hmm. And there, there's a Goldilocks zone of like fast enough and smart enough. Mm -hmm. And you may have to build multiple models because you need it to hold just, you know, it can only hold so much knowledge at a smaller, as a medium-sized model. Fine, then you just train the chronic care nurse differently than the preoperative nurse, you know, like you take each of these, or you train what on all the CHI. Like, we'll, we'll figure yeah. out. 
But there's a, um, uh, one of the things you hear out there is, oh, I think large language models, horizontal models can be vertical models. They're just better. Yeah. If the information is on the internet, maybe that's true. Like it was true in coding, but guess what? GitHub was crawled by these guys. So largely was available for the big mm -hmm. model from. And so, um, you know, it's just a different, it's a different answer here. So I think yeah. content is largely not available. You know, that's, that makes a difference. Now, mind you, we do not train on identified content at all. All our training is on de-identified content where it is kind of medical, individual content, but it's all largely de-identified. I saw on the Hippocratic website, a lot of metrics and in a, in a lot of categories, you guys beat GPT-4. Uh, do you think it's because of this secret sauce that you said of building your own from the ground up and training on that, the iceberg data? Or do you there's think there's many, many reasons? Well, many reasons, but um, yeah, there's there's many things. I mean, it's kind of the sum of all parts, you know. So I I don't even know which part made the biggest difference, honestly, because we didn't mm -hmm. didn't have time to do it like one bit at a time. <laughs> we yeah kind of built it all, but um, you know, we're starting to do some of that work now of reverse engineering it. But um, and it could be an emergent phenomenon too, just with all of these like a symphony of things coming together. You know, it's also just. Um, you, you know, this, it, it did make us realize that just verticalizing a model, you get a lot of gains. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot that is just domain specific. Yeah. In healthcare. So. Help. And about hallucinations, have you experienced any hallucinations from your LLM? Uh, and if so, how do you try and remedy that? Yeah, so there's a couple of things. First, you know, this is why I'm picking all the application areas I'm picking. I'm not doing diagnoses. Like, okay, I'll probably create one that can talk to you about your healthcare bill. All right, it hallucinates your bill, an answer to your bill. I mean, it's not great. You got the wrong answer, but like, it's not the end of the world, right? Yeah. Okay. In fact, if you've ever called a healthcare call center about your medical, <laughs> you probably got the wrong answer. Hey, that's pretty good. Yeah. Like half the time good. I called, they're like, oh yeah, Mr. Shaw, that's covered. And then you're like, later on, find out it's not covered. I'm like, oh, that's so true. Holy that's boy, happened to me. Covered. Yeah. That's happened to like everybody. Like, <laughs> you know, so. Human. It's just human know, lacking. You know, it's because they have such high turnover in those call centers. They can't possibly train people well enough and the systems mm -hmm. are just not, you know, like can't cover every case. And so, yeah. like, I think, I I think that part the one of the keys is pick, you know, pick low risk activities. Like walking you through preoperative questions is much easier. Notice I didn't say we're doing post op, because in post op if it hallucinates, like that's a way bigger risk. Because you know I'm mm -hmm. bleeding and then we don't catch that and we or we say oh that bleeding's fine, <laughs> like no that's not okay. So mm -hmm. uh, you know in it, part of this is really thinking through the application. Second, there is a bunch of techniques where now that you have certified good content that you know is clinically accurate, you you significantly overtrain on that data. In fact, you see this in the LAMA 2 paper as well. It's talked about how they overtrained on high-quality content and they were able to show that that reduced hallucinations. Mm. So that's the other thing. Nice. We're now yeah. taking that to the lane and we're like, oh, well, what if we really overtrain? Just let's see what happens. So yeah might overfit, which means it only learns that content. That's not ideal either, but let's see. Yeah. See we can get the hallucination level um, by over, over training on high quality content. 
Uh, and then there's other techniques that you can do in a vertical domain that are hard to do in a horizontal domain, which is you can cross-check it with the database, you know, something called document retrieval, and then you basically... Mm. I suspect by the time we're done with these, we'll be able to get hallucinations to a very, very acceptable rate. Yeah. And, and as I said at the beginning of this, you know, conversation, like by picking the right applications, you also reduce the kind of need. Like, you know, think of a dietitian, like really, you know, what, what other than messing up allergies, which we'd have to put some very strong safeguards around, let's say, like it's not the end of the world if they're a dietitian. Says, well, you yeah, know. drink a Diet Coke. Well, you know, one Diet Coke's not going to kill you. Yeah, we'll do right, that yeah. the next time. But like, but even something like, you know, um, uh, it can make up a dish at a restaurant that doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, okay. Like, uh, you know, so I, I, I think a lot of it's just finding the right applications. I mean, we're very serious about being safe, but we've just found that the lever isn't picking the right applications. Mm -hmm. Big in lab picking the right applications. Have you deployed any of uh, any of your models in real world applications yet? No, not yet. Um, we will not deploy until that panel of RLHF folks tell us it's ready. And we're still building the production version of the system now. And mm -hmm. we have we we have a number of uh, things we. We announced a whole bunch of health system partners that are going to be giving us the, uh, you know, working with us to make sure the model's safe and are going to be, uh, you know, kind of just, you know, uh, eventually testing our stuff. But, um, you know, we we just partnered with folks early so that the medical industry and the medical establishment would be part of us ensuring it's safe. Like, I, I wasn't just going to sit here and build it and be like, duh, tell me. Yeah. It's like, now we, we have, we have them pretty um, closely working with us to ensure that. Can you disclose what your first target would be, your first target application, like a CHF uh, triage nurse or like pre-ops? Mm. We're working on about five or six of them. Um, but in honestly, it'll depend on which one passes first, <laughs> so, mm -hmm. right? Like you can't, there's the really interesting thing about, you can't say you have a deadline and say your safety first. That's a, yeah, yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. One of those two things is not true. Mm -hmm. So, um, I, we just said, look, we'll launch it when it's ready. It almost feels like you're, you're like training little babies. Yeah. I mean. We're trying to make it safe and we're very serious about that. And so, mm. but uh, look, I, I think that a lot of folks have taken a different approach here. Oh, definitely. They, they, they love the glory of like, I'm going to build a doctor and I'm like, you, you go do that. Yeah. yeah like Martin Shkreli. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Whomever. But I mean, he's not the only one, right? Like I think every Dr. Gupta language researcher out there wants to build a system to do diagnoses. And yeah, that's mm -hmm. right. I, mean, I do think that'll help the world. I just don't think this technology is safe enough for us to take that risk yet. I agree. Kind of zooming out, I'm curious, uh, how far do you think we are from health general intelligence? Like HGI? Yeah, yeah. We call it that too inside here, by the way. <laughs> um, I don't know. You know, I, I don't know that um, that that matters. 
Meaning that that's not how the industries they're not going to use an HGI product. Mm. Right? Like they're going to use a chronic care nurse. They're going to use a genetic counselor. Like, I don't, I don't know. Is there more value to having all that in one? It's not that often that you need all that in one. I mean, occasionally it's nice that your doctor also knows about this and also knows about that, but it's not. But they, yeah, I don't know how long it is. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm not even sure there's a need. You know, I think I think the staffing is a better angle, which is, you know, just look. The healthcare system is suffering from a massive shortage of staffing almost everywhere and in almost every developed country of the world. This mm-hmm. staffing shortage isn't like a U.S. only thing. It's a worldwide thing and it's in almost every role out there. Um, you know, try to get yeah, my, my son had to have a genetic test uh, two years ago or a year ago. And the results came back and they're like, great. I'm like, well, what are the results? We're kind of stressed out about this. They're like, oh, well, we'll make an appointment with the genetic counselor. And then they come back. They're like, yeah, your appointment's in two and a half, three months. Oh, that's terrible. What? I'm like, so what? We're supposed to be like stressed out for the next like like two and a half months? They're like, oh, they're just really busy. I'm like, that is unacceptable. Yeah. Like the amount of extra stress you're putting on my family. Terrible. Just a capacity issue, which I understand their capacity issue, but you know, genetic counselors don't do diagnoses, right? They, they just tell you the implications of the genetic test. The genetic test is, by definition, diagnosed, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, anyways, there's a there's a whole host of things like that that, that mm-hmm. I think augmenting staffing, like people, like it's true, like a lack of capacity is leading less patients to be seen is leading things to be caught later, is leading to more higher mortality and higher costs. Yeah. It it has to be. Yeah. People are like, oh, yeah, we've got a staffing problem, but, you know, we still take care of patients great. I'm like, that that can't be true. Like, if you have a staffing shortage, that means somebody didn't get an appointment that they wanted an appointment. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, and then they got seen later. And sometimes seeing later was fine, but sometimes being seen later was not fine. And the issue accelerated or it became more serious or the cancer metastasized or, you know, whatever in that time frame. Mm. What about in uh, 10 to 20 years, what do you think the future of AI in medicine will look like? Um, you know, I don't know. Like, I think it really depends upon this ability to reason that we're seeing in the LLM, like if we can, if these models continue to follow these kind of scaling laws, they call them, and they continue to get smarter and we have in the GPUs get faster that, you know, I think we will see it a build, you know, and we can answer some of these other questions on hallucinations that, you know, we'll see a whole host of applications. But I, I think, there's so many ifs in what I just said that mm-hmm. very hard, you know, there's a, there's quite a fog of war here. You know, I mean, you can only yeah. eat in front of you at the moment. And uh, again, by scaling laws, what did you mean by the scaling laws? Scaling laws are these, these, um, dimensions or this, these kind of properties they've noticed in LLM so far that mm-hmm. when you dial up the number of parameters, these things tend to happen at this level. These oh, okay. Would be the computing costs, like the, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about kind of 
how the system performs as it's scaling up. Yeah, I, I feel I've seen some some pretty, I don't know if terrifying or inspiring is the right word to use. It's just of charts of, um, of the performance of these LLMs, and it's been interesting. Uh, I recently read a book from Ray Kurzweil's on like the singularity. Even from like the the eighties, he he projected um, like how the cost of compute would go down, uh, and that in the mid in the eighties, he predicted that in the mid twenty twenties, um, mm-hmm. the price of co- the price of the compute of the human brain would be like less than a thousand dollars. And I was like, oh wow, that's like some pretty. I haven't done that math, but look, I mean, I think I think there's clearly a benefit here to augmenting staffing. Um, yeah. And freeing up our our nurses to do things at the top of their license and our other these other roles, dietitian others like, uh, you know, let's uh, there is real benefit to doing that, and some of it's quite low risk. Like, mm-hmm. you know, why would we spend? Uh, um, you know, we don't have to spend nurse time telling somebody that their test was negative, meaning we didn't find anything. Like, right? Yeah, you can probably have the language model do that. Mm-hmm. People may have some questions. Well, what does that really mean? The language model can answer them actually pretty well. You can always have an escalation. Well, I really still want to talk to my real nurse. Can I do that? Okay, fine. Hit, you know, I'll connect you now. Mm-hmm. But if you, can, you know, create this as the front line. Like that's a ton of time we can save, and that'll let that'll let our staff really attend to patients. Uh, yeah, you know, physically, which which is what we need. So I think Hippocratic is is your third company now, fourth. You, oh, yeah. fourth! Wow! Oh my God! Congratulations! Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, what advice would you give to recent grads who are thinking about starting their own company? Uh, you know, first I would say work for a little while. <laughs> like, there's something about working that gives you a sense of how corporations work, how structure works, how an organization is designed, how you manage people. Like, you need a little bit of that. Um, you know, my my son is a sophomore in college and he's talking about a startup and I'm like, you need to finish school first. And then, <laughs> you know, I'm clearly somebody that's supportive of entrepreneurship, but I'm like, you like, please finish school <laughs> and, and then work for a little bit and then do it. And I, I saw this cause you know, I mentored at Stardex, the Stanford incubator. And I remember when this was like a decade ago. And when I looked at it and these are all folks who had just, most of them had not left or had just, you know, finished their undergrads or were dropping out to do companies. And when you look back, most of those companies actually didn't didn't do well. But most of those founders did well later on their after they those didn't do well. They went and worked for a while and then they did another company and those did well. And so there is kind of a real benefit to I think getting some grounding. So that that's the first thing I would just say. Like you need to learn to work and you learn to work by being at a place for a little while. Like you can go work for a startup, which will teach you a lot about being in a startup. You know, like it's the closest proxy. Um, but uh, but you need to work somewhere. So that that would be my my first kind of element of it. And, and second is just, you know, you hear a lot of instant successes and folks that did it, but man, it's a long slog. Like mm, yeah. this is a deferred gratification game. Now, look, you know, 
med students really don't have a problem with deferred gratification. Like you guys are ready to, like you already signed up for deferred gratification at a level that very few humans ever sign up for, right? So, you know, you already signed up for not only undergrad, but med school and residency. I mean, I was just added all up. It's a lot of years, right? So, um, and then if you do a specialty training, it's even more time, but like, um, so you guys don't tend to have an issue with that, but it it is, for a lot of other people, it is something they don't realize because they just thought, oh my God, you know, they read the one story about the one guy that started it and all of a sudden was successful, you know, three years later and sold the company for $300 million. And, but that, that's not, that's not the reality. Yeah. It's a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot to build a company. Mm. Uh, my next question is, uh, how, how has mentorship shaped your path? A ton, you know, there's a, like, I, I did that Stanford incubator thing, um, because somebody mentored me, right? I had a whole bunch of, you know, seasoned entrepreneurs that mentored me and my first company and my second company. Um, and, uh, even running my third company, I had, you know, CEO coach the whole time that was basically on a weekly basis mentoring me. Um, and I'd say probably 80% of the venture funded CEOs, like get a coach because Everybody needs coach. Like you don't run track without a coach. Yeah, yeah. And you, like, what do you mean? Like everybody needs a coach, and so you just get a coach, mm -hmm. and it helps make you better, pushes you, and so you know that is a critical part. And you know, find somebody that can be your your mentor, um, and and you know, I think it it will make a dramatic difference in in it. Well. Mm. Um, one of my, my last questions, this is more just for fun. Um, it is, uh, what brings you joy? Mm. Uh, there's a couple things. I would say that there's, you know, there's, there's obviously my kids and my family and that's kind of just a given, I think in most people's lives, but, um, outside of, outside of that, I would say that there's two areas. One, uh, on the, like, I just love creating something new in the world. It's like, I love brainstorming ideas. Like I started four companies. I've helped to start another four, five, six. I forget. Oh, wow. I just, oh my God. I spent hours brainstorming ideas on weekends with folks and, and then they ran the company and did it. Maybe I took a board seat at the most, you know, but like, I love the creative process of ideating and coming up with ideas. In fact, I have a whole talk that I give on how to come up with good startup ideas. Um, and uh, how do you do it? Uh, it's a long, it's a longer conversation. <laughs> it is into like very specific techniques on on kind of like things you can use to to find good ideas. But um, uh, the you know, so I love ideating. I, I think it's a lot of fun. Um, and it probably makes me feel more alive, you know, than than anything else out there. Mm. You know, like my wife once watched me do it, and she was like, "Oh my god, I've never, I haven't seen you this excited, and I don't know how long." So. And then the the second part that um, that I truly enjoy is, uh, I, you know, I'm a big cyclist. And again, nothing makes me feel more free and more excited than kind of going down the road at 20 miles an hour, going down a hill at 40 miles an hour. Like, I, just, <laughs> I ride a ton. I love riding. It's the one thing I do in my day. I pretty much work every other hour of the day, you know, except for the one or two hours I bike a day and that's it. And so it's a... Um, but I, I only found that in the pandemic. Like I used to race as a kid and then I went to running because it's a lot more efficient. I didn't have a lot of time, kind of midlife. 
And then in the pandemic, I just, you know, I was done. I was done with my Zoom calls and still light out. And I was like, oh, I can get on a bike and go for a quick ride. And, mm. and I found a whole new group of friends and who also liked to bike. And, um, you know, actually half of our mentoring, so my, my biking crew is a whole bunch of other entrepreneurs and VCs in the area. And so half of our bike rides are, are you know, kind of help sessions to each other. <laughs> it's like, pretty oh, cool. I'm trying to hire a new VP of marketing, like, blah, blah, blah. I'm trying to have trouble with this. And the other guys on the ride are like, well, maybe you could try this. <laughs> so, like, it's like both like, exercise and like ideating or yeah, it's like exercise cool. and coaching all, all at once or group therapy, <laughs> whatever you want to call it. But I mean, it's a great group. We have a lot of fun. So. I'm curious more about the the process of ideating. Um, do you think it's more like, is, is it like dreaming or is it like meditative or is it more of like an active um like brainstorming, like how would you describe your process? Um, so I'll, I'll give you a couple um, of the techniques that I go through. For example, one of them is to find a good idea. Sometimes you look for legal driven market shifts. Okay. So take the case of Roman or uh, what was the other competitor? I guess they're called Row now. It's not Roman anymore, but, um, and uh, all those companies that did digital prescriptions affect, you know, did prescriptions for mm -hmm. hair drug mm -hmm. loss and, you know, um, getting and now why did they all take off at once? Well, a new law got passed allowing for telemedicine without having to have a license in every state. As long as you have a license in one state, you could do telemedicine for all the other states. Right. Oh, OK. And, OK. And that law, and and I, so I literally talked to the CEO. I'm like, why did you come up with this idea now? And he's like, well, that law was coming out. And number two, he said, you know, I guess Viagra had just gone off a patent or something like that. It's it perfect something. timing, huh? Yeah. And he said, this is why I did it. The timing was right. So I always tell people, wow. I'm like, A, look for new laws that come out that are game-changing and what they enable. Two, look for new, or sometimes go and propose the laws and get them passed. Yeah, like yeah. not that hard actually. In some cases, it a law is not difficult if if nobody's opposing it. It's actually not that hard to get, you know, through the system, especially if people generally think it's a good idea. Mm -hmm. And if somebody's opposing it, it's a whole other story. But like, so that's a very concrete technique that you can use to identify upcoming new ideas that couldn't have been done before, and therefore nobody built that sort of company. Wow. The second. Um, technique is is a unique data analysis so one of my first the first company i built was a company that built tools for automating selling on ebay when ebay had just started and at the time everybody thought ebay was a person-to-person -person marketplace they didn't realize it was a, it was you know something else and we did because we wrote a crawler at the time ebay was wide open and we wrote a crawler and we downloaded every transaction we analyzed it and we're like oh wait 17 percent of the sellers are doing 80 percent of the selling huh and we're like, oh, this isn't a P2P marketplace. This is a small business sales channel. Makes <laughs> them micro small businesses done out of people's garages, right? And then we're like, well, I'm sure they're going to need a bunch of tools to manage their inventory and manage their customer lists and get payment and ship things out and have labels automatically printed on the printer. We did all that. Ah. Insight by downloading a unique data set. I actually heard of another entrepreneur who came up with this idea he went in the iTunes app store and said, I'm going to find something with the uh, the largest number of downloads but the lowest ratings. <laughs> right? Clear evidence of demand, 
got really low ratings. And so this is, again, just, I remember he told me this story like a decade ago, maybe a decade and a half, a little more than that. And, you know, mobile had been going, but turns out that what he settled on was building a little app that people paid like a dollar for to apply for um, certain government benefits. Huh. The website was so crappy, nobody could use it and definitely, definitely couldn't use it at that time on their phone. And and somebody else had done some really kind of not great version of that, but clearly everybody wanted to get their free government benefits, so he built that app. That's great. And made millions, actually. <laughs> wow. Like, <laughs> you know, so there are these very core techniques. Probably the last one I'll share with you is what I call the breadth-first search, which is in computer science, there's a saying of kind of depth-first search. Do you go deep into something and then explore the second idea? Or do you kind of take a mm -hmm. you know, five ideas and then go a little deeper on all five and all that? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have always found that you can delude yourself that something is a good startup idea too easily. Mm -hmm. And so going deep doesn't work because once you've committed so much time investigating an idea, you'll just naturally conclude it's good. Yeah. And um, and so you you always, you don't try to answer the question, is X a good idea? Because you'll just delude yourself into it. You try to answer the question of these five, which one is the best idea? And uh -huh. you comparative, the comparative process will help you maintain your objectivity. I like that. I like that. It's like having a differential. That, that's really nice. And so, like, that's the other technique that I always kind of tell people to use is, is, is and, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be somewhat creative. Like, if you're somebody that never thinks of a new idea in your whole life, then you know, maybe, maybe coming up. But good luck, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not for you. But, um, uh, you know, you need to partner with somebody who is like that and let them come mm -hmm. up with the idea. And then the two of you build a company together because maybe you're really good at the operations and, you know, making sure the trains run on time, but you're not good at coming up with ideas. So, um, you know, and unfortunately the SAT and all the tests we take in no way test creativity. Mm -hmm. So, um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean that, doesn't say anything about whether people are creative or not. So. Yeah. Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much, Moonjal. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me on the show. <laughs>